Welcome to the Granary Church podcast. We're happy you could join us. For more information on the Granary Church, head to granary.org.au or follow our socials at the Granary Church. Great to uh, be with you this morning. And uh, in fact, I'm going to invite you, if you would like, um, to stand for the reading of the word this morning. I'm reading from Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus is um, preaching. This is the Sermon on the Mount. And he says in verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Please be seated. So we're uh, moving through the Gospel of Matthew at the moment, looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, and the Sermon on the Mount is um, the longest recording, a recorded, um, we'd have a recording of it, that'd be nice, um, the longest uh, recorded teaching of Jesus, and uh, and it spans a couple of chapters in the book of Matthew in the Bible. And the question that we're looking at today is, what does Jesus think about the Bible? Which, if we want to take uh, Jesus seriously, then um, we're going to want to take this question seriously. And some of you, uh, hopefully, um, a lot of you will have Bibles, um, either on your phone or you'll have a physical Bible. If you don't have a Bible, if you don't own one and you would like one, just go and buy one. Or you can go and speak to someone who's got a lanyard on because they'll give you a free one. That's just a general rule about life. If someone's got a lanyard, then it generally means they can give you something for free. So go and speak to someone with a lanyard. Not just today. If you ever see someone with a lanyard, just go and say good day. So the Bible, you know, that you have in your hand or on your phone or whatever is uh, a library of books. That's what it is. You know, we think of it as one book, but it's actually a collection of books. It's a collection of books that uh, were written over over a, more than a thousand years, which is really amazing. Like, that's incredible. Like, all these, it's written by multiple authors and it had many, even more, you know, editors working towards this tome that we've come to know, to know as the Bible. And it uh, is made up of, of all sorts of different kinds of literature. There's uh, story and poetry, and there's a play, and there's memoir, there's legal code, genealogy, there's wisdom, one liners, there's letters, there's biographies, there's theological essays, uh, and there's um, everyone's favorite genre, apocalyptic. And as I say, it spans a very long period of time. In Genesis 1, the very first chapter of the Bible, it, it, before it was written down, you know, that story existed in spoken tradition well beyond, like well before the time of Moses when it was put down. And then we have uh, the New Testament, which dates within a couple of decades after Jesus. And yet all of that took place 2,000 years ago. So, you know, like even the, even the um, most recent books in the Bible are, are, are 2,000 years old at this point. And yet in that 2,000 years, the, the Bible hasn't lost popularity. In fact, it's grown in popularity. 
It is the best-selling book of all time. You probably know that. You don't see it on bestseller lists because if they put on bestseller lists, it would be number one every week, week in, week out. It's not funny. It's true. And uh, it is obviously translated into um, hundreds of different languages and uh, and is read right around the world and, and it has captured the the fascination and the interest and the attention of cultures uh, right around the world for thousands of years. And that's interesting. Uh, look, even if you're you know, here today and you're sceptical, you're unsure about Christianity, you know, I think a good place to start would be, well, what is it about the Bible that causes so much interest? You know, why do people keep coming back to this book? I heard John Mark Comer preaching on, on talking about the Bible and he, he draws out the idea that the thing with the Bible is that at the heart of it, it's a book that deals with the human condition. And even though it was written, you know, from a different culture thousands of years ago by many different people over a long period of time, fundamentally, it deals with what it means to be human. And that's why we can still read it today, thousands of years later, you know, in a Western culture and and still have it speak to us today. But, you know, I don't want to be naive about the fact that Lots of people, probably even some people here, find the Bible boring sometimes, for starters, but even um, some people will find it difficult to understand, confusing, um, just plain weird in some in some parts. I'm not sure exactly what your engagement with the Bible will have been, but I, I also recognise that some people will take issue with elements of the Bible. Maybe you've even read things in the Old Testament that you found offensive or um, disagreeable in one form or another. You know, obviously there's, there's things in the Bible which are incredibly violent, things which would be at odds with our day and age and in, in the New Testament as well. Um, you know, and I, I want to sit with that reality today as we look at this question, what does Jesus think about the Bible? And we can see it in this passage that I read at the beginning. And the three main things that I want to draw out from this passage is that Jesus believes that the Bible is true that he thinks that the Bible should be obeyed. And the third thing is that he, sh- he points to us in this text how we are to obey it. So that the Bible is true, that it should be obeyed, and how we are to obey it. And I'm just going to look at those three things briefly. So Jesus thinks that the Bible is true. And as Sue mentioned, I'm involved with Alpha. We're running Alpha at the moment, and there's a Alpha taking place in Maitland and uh, VIPs have just finished one and um, Granary Care Community is about to start one and we're going to be starting more in the second half of the year as well. So if you would like to get involved with Alpha, then go to our website and, and register. But Alpha is fantastic and it, it looks at different at the fundamental aspects of, of Christianity. And this week's episode happened to be on the Bible. And in it, Nikki Gumbel, who runs Alpha, was saying that the Bible is the divinely inspired word of God and that we can know that it's the divinely inspired work of God, word of God, for three reasons. Because it claims to be, it seems to be, and it proves to be. So it claims to be is the first part. So in the Bible, you know, the Bible, the books of the Bible um, speak about themselves as being the divinely inspired word of God. So it's not as if this is something which has been retrospectively imposed upon the Bible that it never claimed about itself. It's presenting itself as being the word of God. So that's the claim, but you know, but other things could claim that. So then the next part is is that the Bible seems to be the word of God. And what is meant by that is that when you read it, 
it has the ring of truth to it. And some people in the room right now know exactly what I'm talking about. Other people mightn't have had that experience, mightn't be sure. But when you read it, you know, you you get the sense that this is this doesn't read like a forgery or a fake or some kind of um, weird hoax or uh, or a lie. You know, it's it's written and it has the the ring of truth to it uh, as you read it. And if you haven't had that experience, then again, go and buy a Bible and read it and see what it's like. Because you know, you don't always even understand everything, or you, know, you might have questions. But still, fundamentally, you know, it's got the ring of truth about it. But the the last thing is that it proves to be true. And proves to be true just simply means that as you read the Bible and you um, begin to apply what it's telling you, think about what it's telling you, and you begin to actually apply it to your life and live it out, you begin to see the reality of it in your life. And that's how it proves to be true. So it's not just that it's kind of like a textbook which is you know intellectually true in some kind of disconnected way. It proves to be true because you live it out and you and you, you get to know understand God's truth through it in an experiential relational way. So it claims to be, it seems to be, and it proves to be true. But the question here is: Is the Bible authoritative? Does it have authority? over us? And, in, in, and if so, in what way does it have authority? And, um, you know, the whole idea of authority can be really awkward. And, and, and maybe, you know, the idea of like being in church and them talking about having authority can be, you know, that can be a little bit of a scary idea. But Jesus uh, here is teaching the, obviously the Bible in Jesus' day was the Old Testament. So obviously he didn't have the New Testament at that point because he's in it. But he's, he has the Old Testament. So when he talks about the law and the prophets, he's talking about the law, which is the f- first five books of the Old Testament in your Bible. Um, the prophets, which is, you know, the major prophets, the minor prophets. But that also includes the, the historical writings like Kings and Chronicles. And, uh, and in other parts of the New Testament, Jesus talks about the writings as well, which includes books like the Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. So Jesus is talking about the Old Testament here, but his sermon on the Mount is really a teaching of the Old Testament. And he says in verse 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now, why, why is Jesus even taking the time to say this? The reason is, is because the way that Jesus lived his life, his ministry in Israel back in the day was so unexpected, so radical, so controversial that there were people who were thinking, is he coming to say that the Bible doesn't matter anymore? Is he coming to say that, to, to do away with it? And he's answering that question by saying, don't think that I've come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And, uh, and he, says, he goes on to say, uh, I truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law. That's a translation of uh, what in Hebrew is a yod. And a yod is a, like, the small, one of the smallest characters in the Hebrew language. Uh, just to, you know, to give you a picture, you know, in the story of Genesis, there's the character Sarai, whose name is changed to Sarah. When her name is changed, a yod is um, removed from her name. 
change it from Sarai to Sarah. So it's a, it's a tiny little line in Hebrew characters. And Jesus is saying, uh, even that is important to me. And, um, and that's important for us, you know, because often, you know, like I, I hear now people who think that, you know, who look at the Bible proportionately and they'll kind of go, okay, what's the proportion of this to the length of the Bible? You know, someone might say something like, yeah, but that's only three verses in the Bible, you know, in the context of the whole Bible or whatever. But what Jesus is saying here is that even the smallest part of the, of the Bible is important to him. And he says he hasn't come to abolish the law, but the interesting part is, You'd think that the opposite of saying, I haven't come to abolish the law is I've come to uphold the law. But that's not actually what he says. He says, I have come to fulfill the law. For Jesus, the Torah, the the Old Testament wasn't God's final word, but it was more of like a hold me over to mankind until Jesus gets there. So he has, you know, the religious conservatives of his day who think, oh, is Jesus going to reinforce legalism? And then you have, I guess, like the liberals of the day who would say, is Jesus coming to say the Bible doesn't matter anymore? But Jesus comes and says, I'm here to fulfill the law, which actually flies in the face of the expectations of both of those groups. For him to fulfill the law means that what he's saying is that I'm here to bring about everything which the old, to which the Old Testament was pointing. So the Old Testament now we can see in retrospect is pointing towards something which Jesus and his kingdom fulfills. So he believes that the Bible is true and that he has come to fulfill it. But the second point is that we need to obey the Bible. And many of us in this room even would say Jesus is our Lord. But if we say that Jesus is Lord, but then we don't care to find out what he teaches or to obey his commands, then we're really just giving lip service, aren't we? Or we're hypocrites at the worst. So the question is, will we define good and evil for ourselves, or will we say there is a creator and I am a creation? You know, if we think about um, Genesis, this, and I was saying before that the Bible is a story about the human condition. And we see in, the old t- in, in Genesis that Adam and Eve are presented with this question of, will I define good and evil for myself, or will I take God's will, God's design for good and evil. And of course, they, 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 they disobey. And that's the ultimate question is that we have to ask ourselves is, am I going to fi- define good and evil for myself or will I listen to God? And, th- and that's the question that's being posed here by Jesus. For the Bible isn't just meant to be read and believed, but it's meant to be lived. The Bible is for us a means to an end. That end is not information just for us to get ideas but transformation. Verse 19, Jesus says, Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So what does it mean to be called least in the kingdom of heaven? Well, I mean, we could argue that point, but I think what we can, what we can see fundamentally is that there is some correlation between our treatment of the Bible and God's treatment of us. Are we going to treat the Bible with contempt? Or are we going to treat the Bible seriously? But then he goes on and says, whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And what does it mean to be great in the kingdom of heaven? Does it mean that you get a new car? Maybe. I think what it means is that if 
you follow his instruction, if you follow the instruction of scripture, then you will become great in the kingdom, meaning that over the course of your life, you will grow into a shining example of all that Jesus and his kingdom stands for. Now, is that important to you? Well, that's a whole other question. But if that's important to you, to become a shining example of Jesus and all that his kingdom stands for, then to follow scripture over the course of your life will go well with you. He goes on in verse 20, Jesus says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. If you're familiar with the writing, you know, writings about Jesus, you'll see that he often seems to be having a go at the Pharisees. And we, I think as Christians, you know, we, we kind of just think of the Pharisees as being bad guys. And, and, you know, often we'll say, oh, that person's got a Pharisaical spirit or something like that. And, um, and so we, we have like this fairly contemptuous attitude towards Pharisees. But there's actually a belief that Jesus criticizes the Pharisees because there is a theory that he w- was a Pharisee himself, which sounds a bit weird to say, or at the very least, it was the group that he most closely identified with because the Pharisees were the, they were the, uh, the group in, in Israel in the day who were the most pious, uh, the most serious about upholding the laws. In fact, they even made some more laws of their own just so that they could uphold them, which is pretty, pretty impressive. Do you know anyone like that? But the Pharisees were actually popular with the people. And Jesus' words here were designed to shock the hearers because they would have considered the Pharisees to be the most respected for their religiousness, for their piety. So what's Jesus talking about here when he says, your righteousness has to surpass the Pharisees? Like, they'd be thinking, the Pharisees, they're the most well-behaved religious people going around. And our righteousness has to surpass even them? Like, this is impossible. But what Jesus is talking about is that he's looking for a righteousness which is not just on the surface, but a righteousness which exists at a core level. He's saying that the meticulous legalism of the Pharisees is now inadequate because his fulfillment of the law has brought about a new context for us to live in, and that's the context of the kingdom of heaven. And what we see in the Sermon of the Mount, and we'll see it in the next couple of weeks, is that Jesus goes on to preach about legal aspects of the Old Testament and to say, I actually want to go deeper. You know, you've heard that you aren't supposed to murder. Well, I'm saying that if you have hatred in your heart, then I want to even deal with that. You know, you might say, well, I've never committed adultery, but you have lust in your heart towards someone else. And you could keep all of these laws on a surface level and still not be right with God in your heart. Jesus is saying, I actually want to go further than the Pharisees who have got everything right on the outside, and I want to go into those deep places where there's actual real-life soul and spirit transformation. Where the heart is not right, drastic action is needed to correct it, even before it results in outward sin. So Jesus is raising the bar here. He's not lowering the bar. He's saying, I want to go deeper. I want this to become a whole person transformation. And that could be really intimidating. But the good news is that he doesn't just come and give this sermon and say, you know, it's not just, you know, you can't just, uh, you know, not murder someone. Now you've got to be nice and think nice thoughts and then just leave and say, no, good luck. He actually comes to deliver, deliver us a way of being able to live out his design, God's design for mankind, which brings me to the third point, which is how we are able to obey the Bible. And, and the Bible, if you don't know, it isn't just a list of rules. In fact, lists of rules and laws is 
really less than 10% of what makes up the Bible. And, and some of those rules are for a certain group of people in uh, a certain context. And it takes, um, you know, it takes time for us to get more familiar with understanding those sorts of things. But the Bible is primarily a story. It's a story woven through time in which Jesus right here is presenting himself to us as the climax of the story. So now when we read the Bible, it's Jesus isn't coming to say, and now you get because I'm here, you get to pick and choose what bits you like and what bits you don't like. That's not what he's coming to say by saying, I've come to fulfill the law. He's saying, now you read the Bible and I am the way in which you interpret it. I'm the interpretive key through which you approach all parts of the Bible. There's no good for us now to go back and approach parts from the New Testament or take parts of the Old Testament out of context and just use them as a, uh, you know, as a weapon. But we need to be looking at them through the lens of Jesus and saying, how does this point towards the person of Jesus? give you an example from Isaiah chapter 53. This is a, a prophecy from the Old Testament, which before Jesus would have been interesting. But now that Jesus has come to fulfill, it makes a whole lot more sense. It says, speaking about the one who is to come, it says in uh, verse 4, Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know, we read a passage like that now, and it points us towards Jesus. We can see that now as we look through the lens of Jesus to the Old Testament. We can see this passage was talking about him. And it's telling me now that, even though I have turned to my own way, the, the punishment that I should receive for, for not living up to, to the standard of Scripture has been laid upon him. And does that mean now that I'm free just to disregard Scripture? No, it means actually I am free to obey. I'm free to obey Jesus because I'm able to come towards his commands from a place of love. Like, you know, it's almost like you're coming romantically, like you'll, you'll wish God is my command rather than from a place of fear because the punishment, as we can see in Isaiah, has been laid upon him for you and for me, for all of us. Jesus says in John chapter 5, The Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. It's my prayer today that we wouldn't just come to the Bible because, you know, you could spend your whole life studying the Bible and still not, as Jesus is saying here, come to him to have eternal life. That's what the Bible exists for us to know. It's a means to an end. The end is transformation where we come to know God personally through Jesus. And the Bible is, is always going to be in constant need of debate. And, and we can have those 
conversations and and those dialogues we we can we can rediscuss certain passages of, of the scripture but not to make it more and more like us but to make us more and more like Jesus so that we can get back to the heart of what scripture is which is which is meant to be pointing us to the knowledge the true knowledge of God through Jesus you know reading the bible individually it's just a final little point that i want to make reading the bible individually is only a relatively recent practice in in you know in history because you know before the invention of the printing press there wasn't many bibles going around you know you just had big ones in Latin and no one understood Latin. <laughs> but then the printing press happened, it started to go into people's vernacular and, 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 and now we can all have a copy of a Bible, we have it on our phones or whatever. Um, and we cannot sometimes think that reading the Bible on our own, you know, having a quiet time reading the Bible on our own is kind of like the be all and end all of the Christian life. But actually that hasn't been the Christian's experience for most periods through history. Most periods reading the Bible has been done in community. And I want to encourage you, you know, that if you're feeling a little bit stale in your Bible reading life, or maybe it's time that you start reading the Bible with someone else. And that, because, you know, when we read the Bible on our own, we can always be tempted to do narcissus, where we just read our own desires into the text, make it say what we want to say. But when we read it with someone else, we actually, you know, we have to contest with others. Someone else goes, I actually think I'm actually seeing something else. And if we can gather as a community around the word of God with humility and actually in that dialogue, um, listen to one another, then I think it's in that place that we are going to be able to more crystal clear hear the word of God speaking to us today through his text. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much that you have revealed yourself to us. You really have revealed yourself to us. You've come to us and given us your word, and your word is Jesus. And it's my prayer today that for anybody in here who doesn't know you, has not met you, has not experienced you, that today would be the day that they come to know you. And for anyone else who, who knows you, you know, maybe they could know you a little bit better. Or maybe they could move beyond just outward practices or intellectual games and actually move into a deep transformation of you. That's what we all desire. There's always a little bit more that we could experience of your transformation. So I pray that would be true for all of us today. Amen. Thank you for listening to our Sunday podcast. If you enjoyed it, either subscribe or follow on the podcast app that you use to keep up to date on when our next Sunday podcast gets released. Have a safe and blessed week.